Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. This episode is a continuation of our fellowship-focused mini-series, which highlights each of the fellowship opportunities within the field of dermatology. In this episode, we talk with Dr. John Cangelosi, a pathology-trained dermatopathologist and founder and CEO of one of the nation's largest dermatopathology labs, Sagis Diagnostics. Today, I'm your host, Austin Black. See you on the skin side. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Cangelosi. Dr. Cangelosi, would you mind introducing yourself briefly? Sure. Um, I went, I grew up in the Houston area. I went to med school at UT Houston, and I did a pathology residency at UTMB, and then a derm path, uh, search path fellowship at MD Anderson, derm path fellowship at back at UTMB, and I started SAGES in 2012. And so now I'm one of the partners and CEO of Sages Diagnostics here in Houston, Texas. Perfect. So Dr. Cangelosi is joining us as part of our fellowship focus series. And as he mentioned, he is a dermatopathologist, but he went about it with the pathology route. So getting a little bit of a different perspective um, kind of on that pathway and the differences and pros and cons to both of those. Um, will be pretty insightful for us today. So getting right into it, going into med school, in med school, was derm path always on the radar? Was pathology always on the radar? Kind of where was your your head at at that point? No, actually, it seemed like anytime I rotated with someone, I, that's what I wanted to do. So in high school, when I was thinking about going to med school, I rotated or spent a summer with an anesthesiologist kind of, you know, shadowing them for for a month or so and i was sold on anesthesia that's what i was going to do and then you know you get into well the first and second years are still pretty much in the classroom so you don't have a lot of exposure to you know other specialties but when i became a when i was a third year um i rotated with a urologist and so i thought that's exactly that's exactly what i wanted to do and then you know, I was introduced to radiology and spent some time there. And I was like, well, maybe that's what I want to do. So I was all over the place. <laughs> uh, it wasn't till the end of my third year. And while I was rotating actually on a, uh, it was more of an um, internal medicine rotation. And one of my intern, one of the interns on my team, we were discussing just fellowships and whatnot and, or I mean, residencies. And he's like, you know, you should look into uh, pathology. It's actually a pretty sweet gig. And, um, and then if you're interested in that, you should look at derm path. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I know, I know a handful of derm paths and they're doing really well. And so I was like, well, I am, first of all, I don't know much about pathology other than what we learned in basic sciences and first year and definitely don't know anything about derm paths. So, um, I rotated with with Howie Gerber, uh, who's one of my mentors, and he had a actually I had to Google what Dermpath was and if there was any, you know, 
anybody that practiced it in the Houston area. And there was this one guy that popped up and he was pretty close to my house where I lived. So I sent him a, actually I called his office and left a message and called me back. And he's like, yeah, man, I'm a UT Houston alumni and I'd love to have you. And that was right before spring break. So he's like, you know, want to spend a week with me. And so instead of hanging out with friends or doing anything like that over spring break, I ended up spending the week with, with uh, Dr. Gerber. And after that, I was like, man, maybe that's what I want to do. But even then, Going into my fourth year, I was still pretty conflicted because I was kind of all over the place. You know, how do you go from urology, more surgical based, to radiology um, or, or pathology, which is almost no, well, obviously no surgery, but very little patient interaction, to anesthesia that was somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I found that pretty difficult to kind of, you know, it, it seems like it's a, it, it is a very stressful time because you're making a decision that's that at the time you think is going to affect the rest of your life. Um, and, you know, just kind of like, wow, I don't know if I have enough data points to, 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 to feel comfortable, you know, going down a, a particular road. Um, and I did. And so this is a pretty, pretty powerful story for me. So I ended up uh, getting selected to do a, a summer research program in Guadalajara, Mexico. With Dr. Dupont, who was the head of infectious disease, um, he was actually chair of both infectious disease departments at Baylor and UT, which is pretty crazy. But he very well known, uh, prolific researcher, and he did this annual summer research project that he only selected a handful of students because so it was somewhat competitive. Um, but you get to go to Guadalajara, you get put in a nice hotel room, they give you a stipend, you get to hang, and then you just hang out a little bit in the clinics and some research and I mean it was just it was awesome so I ended up getting that and I remember you know that's fourth year so you we're, we're diving into at the beginning you know then another month or so I mean we got to got to start turning in you know what we're going to do for interviews and start start applying for for programs and I still was at, at pretty much of a loss when I went into that uh, summer and we were having lunch one time and he's asking, there's 12 of us, and he's asking all the students, like, okay, Josh, so what you're going into, why, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, I'm not sure. I still haven't made a decision. And he's kind of like, why haven't you made a decision yet? And I'm like, I don't know. It's pretty difficult. You know, it's the rest of my life. And kind of explained just sort of what we just talked about. And he kind of, he just sort of took a step back, and he's like, you know, I think you're putting way too much, like, thought into this. And I'm like, I was like, you know, what do you mean? And he's like, well, to me, you only have to ask yourself a couple of basic questions. And then, and then after that, it doesn't really matter. And I was like, okay, what are those? And he's like, first, do you have to ask yourself, do you want to be a surgeon or not? It's pretty clear. If you want to be a surgeon, then there's a handful of surgery sort of options for you. If you don't, then, then you go into the second category. Do you want to see patients or not? And if you do, then there's a set of things that you can decide on. And if not, you know, then there's the radiology, pathology sort of route. And, and he goes, after that, it doesn't really matter what you pick. He goes, your life is going to be pretty similar. He's like, I picked, I thought I was going to be a cardiologist. I ended up doing this research project. He went to, um, he uh, trained at uh, Emory in Atlanta. So there was this research project that came up. He had, you know, was had all of his applications in. He was internal medicine. He had all his applications in for being a cardiologist. And he had this research project came up. 
to do uh, GI work at the CDC. And so he applied for it, got it. And he's like, you know, that little decision made me think, man, maybe I want to do um, infectious disease. And so he changed it to that. But he goes, you know, honestly, if I'd have pit stuck with cardiology, I still would have been in academics. I would have done research or probably would have been a chair of a department somewhere. You know, I still would have had would have gone home at five o'clock to see my kids. You know, I would have done, you know, these sort of like a res- I would have done some sort of research abroad. You know, I, he's like the basic aspects of my life would have been the same. Yeah, that, you know, maybe I'm going to a different place or I'm, I'm, I'm reading different books. But at the end of the day, I'm doing the same stuff. And uh, and I thought that was pretty, pretty I'm extremely insightful. And it didn't allow me to sort of put some context in my decision making. And and with that, I, I realized I didn't want to do surgery and I'd rather not be in a clinic all day. And so that did really push me to either radiology or pathology. And and at that point, it just became a simple aspect of do I want to be more in a dark room or a light room? <laughs> Everything else is uh, you're looking at at pictures and making a diagnosis. And so that's as long a way of saying of how I got to uh, pathology. And then once I got there and I started interviewing, I got in, I, I always had Derm Path in the back of my mind because of Dr. Gerber and that experience I had with him. So when I was kind of thinking about different subspecialties during my residency program, I definitely put emphasis on learning more about Derm Path, seeing that that was something I was going to like. Um, then again, you know, I, I, if it would have been GI or one of the other specialties, my life would have been pretty similar. Um, I, I'm not sure. If, I mean, building a company and whatnot is a little bit tricky when you decide what subspecialty. But in terms of my lifestyle and setting out cases and doing all that, it wouldn't have really mattered too much. Um, and now that, you know, I've been in, in practice for over 10 years, I can... I, Dr. DuPont's words probably ring truer now than they ever did. I mean, he was he was spot on. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's that's a pretty neat story. And I think, I mean, it's definitely not uncommon to have lots of interest or not know what you want to do until the deadline's pretty much right at your right in your face. Um, then you mentioned the kind of the derm path was always in your mind during training for pathology. I think that I would imagine most of our listeners here are probably not as familiar with the pathology route to get to Durham path. Um, so what does like the residency look like? Is, is it, you know, three years, four years, five years? Um, how much exposure do you get to Durham path kind of during that training? Um, questions kind of like that. Yeah. So for pathology, there's, it, it's, it can be either three years or four years. So pathology residency is broken up into two um, aspects. It's a anatomic pathology and clinical pathology. Most pathology residents do a combo of both. So they call it APCP. If you, if you hear that, that, that those acronyms, it's that's abbreviations for anatomic and clinical pathology. So an AP slash CP residency is four years. Now you can do an AP only, which is three years, or a CP only, which is three years. So most people are familiar with anatomic pathology. That's you know looking at slides under a microscope. Clinical pathology is more in the like blood banking, um, clinical chemistry within a laboratory, uh, molecular diagnostics, stuff like that, things that aren't so tissue-based that you're looking under a microscope per se. And so those are, it's more uncommon to be able to just do a CP residency only and get a job out there in the private sector. Those jobs tend to stick with the academic centers. Um, 
And so for, and then even in AP, it's somewhat difficult to only, if you only do AP to get a job in the private sector, because most pathology groups need a, need you to cover clinical chemistry as well. So what you would do is you sign out a bunch of anatomic cases, but then on, you have, you're on call on the weekends or certain weeks of the month where you'll cover the clinical lab. The clinical lab. If you don't have that clinical uh, certification, you won't be able to do that. So because it makes you the most, um, it makes you the most uh, competitive when you're looking for a job. Okay. The most, most of the residents then are the four-year kind of the combined. Yeah. And then almost everyone does a one-year fellowship of some sort. Um, subspecialty is, is extremely common. It's very rare that you come out, which is a four-year APCP residency. Uh, Forwarded, you know, degree and and being able to get a job, um, most people need to get a subspecialty fellowship under their belt so that, you know, certain practices are. Um, so most all residents these days do five years, four okay. year APCP plus a one year fellowship. Okay, and just in kind of preparation for today, um, did you meant anything you mentioned earlier? Did you do two fellowships? Is that correct? I did, yeah. So I did a, uh, and that was more about timing of the fellowship that I want to do in Galveston. Uh, so I got, I ended up doing, I got accepted. It's another thing with Durham that's a little bit difficult is it seems like Durham in, in general for most of the fellowships, you, you end up applying a lot earlier than other fellowships. Um, and so, you know, you're applying two years out. And so I applied my junior, I mean, my third year and I got it, but I, I had a year gap between when I would have graduated and when I started the fellowship. And so I said, obviously not doing anything. I, I did a surgical pathology fellowship and, and I did MD Anderson, which I thought gave me just a well-rounded aspect of other things that I probably wouldn't have learned in my um, term path fellowship, which is a rare um, soft tissue tumors. Um, you know, a lot of uh, new age molecular testing that they do at MD Anderson. And then just other, you know, specific rare cancers of the body that might metastasize to the skin uh, so that, you know, it, it's hard to, to really, to be proficient in that stuff. You don't see a lot of those cases. And so I thought that a search path fellowship at MD Anderson would, would complement my dirt path fellowship well. And I, looking back, and even during my Durham Path Fellowship, I felt that that was a very, um, very invaluable experience. And I spoke with a dermatology trained dermatopathologist um, episodes before this, and they mentioned that in fellowship training, a lot of the times you're hand in hand with the pathology residents. Um, it kind of sounds like that was similar with you where I know that the, the derm path I spoke with who did the dermatology route mentioned that she applied or kind of decided on derm path, usually kind of the first or second year really of your dermatology residency. Like you mentioned, it's pretty early on. Um, and so in your derm path training, were you hand in hand with some dermatology trained um, fellowship or applicants or residents there? Yes, I, I definitely applied with, I mean, I, I sit my application around pretty much the entire country. So I got interviews 
all over the place. And during that interview trail, I, de- I was definitely interviewing with Durham trained, Durham path um, residents. So our program in Galveston, I, w- I don't know if it's unique, but it was, I think, uh, put together very well in the sense that they took two fellows every year. And they always, one slot was always for a path trained dirt path, and one slot was for a dirt trained dirt path. And their um, their explanation for that is that the two residents have obviously very unique backgrounds in residency. And so they complement each other. And the, you know, the clinical aspect of dermatology is very important in derm path, uh, especially for the rashes, di- rash diagnoses. And so having a derm trained derm path as a path train being paired up with a derm trained derm path was, you know, a great learning experience. And on the flip side, the path train derm path had a lot of tissue tumors, like I said, and, you know, metastatic tumors that to the skin. And so those, you know, our background really helped out the derm trained uh, dermatopathology res- uh, fellowship. Um, so, or fellow. So yeah, that that's that's I think they're very extremely they're definitely complementary, and so the the real strong programs in the country tend to pair up a term and a path trained um, resident during the fellowship. Oh, cool! That's good. Good to know, and I definitely see that. Like you mentioned, the benefit of having, um, like you mentioned, the pathology trained fellow and Durham trained fellow. During that fellowship, did you get clinical exposure to some of like the Durham conditions on patients, or that? I did. Yeah. So, so the, again, UTMB was, I think it's why I was, you know, I focused on that fellowship is the one I really wanted. Uh, One was that it was local to where I wanted to live, which was Houston. But number two, I think they did a really good job of acclimating the Derm trained um, Derm Path Fellow into the clinical aspect of of the uh, program. So as a, as a pathology background, I got, I basically was like a first year derm resident. So I had my own clinic once, um, a couple of times a week, we would read out cases early in the morning, and then we would sign out either in the afternoon or have a clinic in the afternoon. Um, I was paired up with the chair of, of the department during her clinic days. So that was learning quite a bit from her. I was in the resident run clinic that was in the, um, Correctional facility. So the resident, the ch- the uh, chief fellows would run that clinic, and I was I was right there with them as a first year, sort of helping out, and at certain times taking care of my own patients if I they needed the help. Um, and so, at, you know, with that immersiveness of the clinical aspect um, of of the of my training, I felt very very confident, you know, knowing the clinical side of things at the end of the year. And so when a lot of my, you know, friends that were doing Durham Path Fellowships and other programs, they were sweating on all the clinical um, dermatology on the on our Durham Path boards, I, I felt very confident, very comfortable in those questions. Um, and so that that was a great aspect. And I think that if you're going to apply for a, a Durham Path Fellowship, you should be asking, especially if you're a, Durham, a, a path trained a background, what is what kind of exposure you're going to have to the clinical side? Because understanding the clinical side, I think, is is, I mean, absolutely necessary to be a, a stellar dermatopathologist. You have to be able to clinical correlate and you have to be able to pick up that phone call and talk to the dermatologist and be able to speak their language um, and be able to understand when they when they give you a clinical scenario, what's going on. 
uh, on the path on the derm side. Um, and what, when I was in clinic, my co-fellow was in the path department, looking at slides, um, you know, sitting with the, with the subspecialty pathologist um, and also doing some grossing. I think even had to do an autopsy or two um, just to really kind of be almost like a first year path resident. And so they got a lot out of that. But, you know, it's really hard. A lot of pathology residencies, the programs aren't set up for having one person come in and out like they would on the clinical side where you can just plug someone in a clinic really easily. Um, so if you're applying for as a derm into a, for a derm pathologist, you really should ask specific questions of how are you going to be treated in the path department? How organized is your schedule? And, um, and, and do you have any sort of say so in, in what you're going to be looking at? Because if you did, you know, you spend all your time doing autopsies, well, that's not going to help you. Um, and so I think it's important to, you know, really look at soft tissue on um, the things that you think you're going to be able to, you're going to have to see in, in the, when you graduate. Yeah, that's great. And really, I like how you mentioned, it's almost like the fellows are getting first year residency exposure to the um, specialty, which, or the fellowship, sorry, residency, which they did not pursue themselves. So first year Durham for the path trained and vice versa. Um, and really, I think that that's really important. Like you mentioned, especially in like rashes, knowing the clinical presentation or having these interactions with the patients um, can be really beneficial. And then I think the same would go the other direction, learning from people who have been looking at, like you mentioned, soft tissue and other pathologies under the slides for three or four years previously, where you're, you know, have a few weeks of it here and there during residency training is really beneficial and hand in hand. And I think you would almost look for a program that has, you know, a co-applicant or a co-fellow that is opposite trained so that you can kind of better one another and learn from each other's strengths that they had from their training. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of programs, especially the, if the ones that are focused, that are based in the Durham department, um, they tend to, to kind of not put a lot of emphasis on the path, uh, path training for, from the Durham fellow. And so that tends to be more shadowing and just kind of going in as you please and in and out. It's really easy to just not do anything at all there. And that's, I think, what a lot of fellows end up doing is they don't do much because they don't see a lot of value there. But they don't see a lot of value there because it's not very structured. And, uh, and so I think it's important during your interview to really dive into that and say, hey, look, it, it, what kind of path, what's my path training going to look like? How is that structured? You know, do I have a say in what I'm going to do? And, and, and can I put, you know, put together a program that I think is going to really um, complement my, you know, my Durham training? Uh, and when the path, when the Durham, when the Durham Path Fellowship is based in the path department, a lot of times the clinical suffers because, you know, they don't put a lot of emphasis on getting in the clinic. So a path trained, um, fellow is, is really going to hurt if they don't have a very structured clinical experience. And I think that means, are you, are you directly involved in grand rounds? Are you, are you directly involved in? you know, all this stuff that as a first year resident, you'd be thrown into and asked questions and called out. And, you know, it, that really motivates you. We, you know, we're, we're all, you know, we all are somewhat, I want to say type A. I mean, most people in Durham are, um, but, you know, just being in medicine in general, 
most medical students don't like to feel like they don't know what they're talking about or, you know, they're the dumbest person in the room, right? So when you're thrown into grand rounds or you're thrown into uh, codochromes, um, when you're thrown into um, unknowns in the path department and you're, you're called out on, do you know what this is? You're a lot more motivated to study and learn that stuff than if you're just sort of a passive observer. Right. And so it's going to make you a lot better pathologist. Yeah. So it, it might not be, um, per se, as easy, the easiest year ever, but you'll be getting the education that'll benefit you throughout the rest of your career. Um, yeah. I mean, I felt like my clinical exposure and the way that they threw me in. I mean, I was in with the first, I acted, I mean, like I said, they treated me like first year. So, you know, when they sent out crotochromes, we, we would do it every Friday where uh, the chair of the department would. I mean, old school um, projector, you know, just throwing up clinical pictures and she'd just go down around the table and say, what's this? What's this? What's your difference? What's this? And I was, I, my, my chair was around that table too. And, you know, <laughs> when I came up, you know, I, at first I, you know, I sound like an idiot. I looked like an idiot. It was embarrassing. And I just knew that I didn't want to feel that way. And so it motivated me to, to be with those first years and say, Hey, what are you studying? you know, what are you looking at to, you know, get better at this? And then towards the end of the year, I felt just as a proficient in, in going into the, those code of crumbs as, as any of the first years. Yeah, that that's really insightful um, perspective too. I, I wasn't aware of how much clinical exposure you get during fellowship as a path trained during path. And it sounds like it's very can, variable. It's, it's yeah, extremely variable depending on the program. program so, that's, so that that's why when you're interviewing, you, most, most residents wouldn't think that to really dive into that. Cause you sort of think, well, it's all kind of the same. Hey, I'm sure all the programs are, you know, they're, they're credentialed, right? So they must all be doing the same stuff. Well, that, that yes and no, they're, they're, they're covering the basics. Um, but they're the details, the devil's in the details. And, you know, unless you're really being treated like that first year resident, I'm not sure if that's the best program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, and I guess you might have a little bit of unique insight and we'll kind of get into, you mentioned earlier, Sages. Um, really quickly, do you mind giving us a little overview of what Sages is? Sure. Yeah, so I... Um, I started Sages back in 2000, really 2011. I graduated my Durham Path Fellowship in July of 2011 and went straight into to putting together how the lab was going to be. But I had been planning that for a little while. Um, I knew that I, you know, I, I've always wanted to do my own thing. And I felt like, well, it's easier to do it right out of fellowship when I wasn't accustomed to a high you know, salary and high standard of living. Um, it's a lot easier to go from 50,000 a year to zero than it is 300,000 a year and zero. So, uh, yeah, I, and I've been, I've been planning that I, I moonlighted, uh, doing some, um, at, at one of the jails here in, in Houston doing family, family practice stuff, just to make some money on the nights and weekends and save up. And, um, when I finally got it going, uh, it, it, you know, it took it. It took a while to. I mean, the, the first week I got seven specimens, um, and that's not 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 definitely not going to pay the bills. <laughs> um, but after a couple of years, you know, we started getting our name out and uh, and really you know, 
you know, really started establishing relationships in the community. And eventually, you know, we were able to, to not just, um, you know, stable or, or to, to, you know, we, we were able not just to break even, but to actually grow. And so um, fast forward to where we are now. I mean, we're, we're one of the larger Dermpath labs in the, in the country for sure. Um, and we, uh, we do, but, but we've also subspecialized and we've gotten involved in a lot more things. Um, so we're covering hospitals. We are um, doing, working with uh, gastroenterology uh, practices, reading their GI cases. Uh, we're covering uropathology and prostates. Um, we're doing uh, hematology in terms of leukemias and lymphomas. Uh, we're doing molecular testing. So we've definitely diversified our portfolio. And we're, I, I would consider ourselves a multi-specialty um, pathology group. Yeah, that's awesome. So initially started at Dermpath and then kind of expanded from there. Is that correct? Correct. So that's correct. And I, I've just been looking on the website and seeing the pathologists that you have kind of working with. Um, I see you have a good mixture of the derm trained derm paths and the path trained derm paths as well. And I'm sure that that too. And that's by to... go ahead. That's by design. Yeah, that's by design. I mean, we we ideally we want fifty percent of our derm paths is path trained, percent derm, and just for the exact reasons why. You know, I explained about the fellowship. It's no different than in practice. And where that really comes in handy for us is, you know, we have a consensus conference every day. Um, that's where everyone sits around a microscope. And, um, you know, now it's more digital. So we're all sitting around a computer screen. But we, uh, we all look at interesting hard cases together. And then our system is able uh, to pull clinical pictures from a lot of the physician groups that send to us. And so we can throw up a clinical. Uh, picture as well and that's just especially on the rashes that that really the term um, dermatology background of our pathologist is really integral in, in helping us make the correct diagnosis and so yeah we we purposely try to balance that out yeah. and we just think it, it it just allows for a better diagnosis and better patient care yeah and I think you explained that perfectly kind of mentioning how they each have their strengths and that kind of the exposure you had to that in your fellowship really kind of showing through now and how you practice with Sages. So with, with having, uh, maybe getting a little bit more into kind of private practice or business aspect, you mentioned that this was something you kind of had in the works even before you had finished fellowship. And obviously it's a struggle to get going, but as far as setting up a pathology lab or a derm path lab, um, what are the differences, I guess, with that as opposed to going out and starting a clinical private practice, if you will? Uh, I don't know much about what it would take to form a clinical uh, practice, but when it, as, as it pertains to a laboratory, uh, it's, you know, I guess I was pretty naive when I started. I just figured, you know, you just put a shingle up and have a decent personality and people will not just send me their biopsies, they'll throw them at me, uh, sort of thing. And I, I just didn't really truly understand that the relationships that a pathologist has with their clinical referring clinicians, because we're talking on the phone a lot, we're doing a lot of clinical pathological correlation. And so there, there definitely is a, you know, we're not just a black box. So, you know, we're not, we're not just doing blood chemistries where we're doing CBCs or something like that. 
Um, we are, we're, we're talking with our referring doctors on a daily basis and, and putting those conversations or making an impact on our diagnoses. And so with that, when you're starting a lab, unless it's an internal to your pathology group, you have to go out and, and get people to refer to you. And so that takes time and it, it takes time to build those relationships. It takes time to build trust. Um, and so you have to plan that out in your business model, because if it's going to take two, three years for people to really start sending to you, well, do you have two, three years of cash flow? And so that from a, just a business aspect of, of um, building a business model, I think you need to, you know, you definitely need to take that, that stuff into account. Uh, in terms of building a lab itself, I mean, labs are expensive to run and it's all about economies of scale. And so it costs the same amount to run that machine if it's got a one specimen in it or a hundred specimens. And so you really want to make sure you have enough volume to make, to, to cover your costs, because if you're only wanting, running one specimen, you build out a full lab, your, your overhead's going to be pretty, pretty significant. Your revenue won't be able to cover it. And I, I could only imagine being a little bit in, in some derm path labs, just the immense amount of equipment and the fees and maintenance fees and purchasing fees that come with those. And so having, like you mentioned, the the patient flow, or in this case, um, the pathology specimen flow to support that, I would imagine is crucial for getting going. It's, it's, it's it, it really is. Um, there's also, you know, reimbursements are always going down. And so, you know, what you think you're getting paid now won't be what you're getting paid for you five years from now. And so taking that into account as well. Um, it's also, you know, the, the derms that tend to put a lab in, in their office, insurances tend to reimburse less for, uh, to those pathologists that are in a, a group setting, a derm group setting, uh, than they would be like an independent, you know, pathology group and and so you also need to take that into account um and so with decreasing reimbursements and and increasing labor costs increasing equipment costs and a lot of times you have to when you buy this equipment you have to sign long-term leases on reagents and so those leases have um you know very specific you know parameters on what what you're, you're going to have to buy each month and if you're not using it you still got to buy it and so, you know, all that becomes harder if you're starting out with no volume or it becomes harder when you have low volume because, you know, if you have low volume and you, and you have a 10% decrease, it can be more than a 10, it can, it can affect your bottom line by 100%. So, you know, just really understanding what you're getting into, why you're making those decisions and what it's going to look like five years from now is very important. I think that's that's great advice um and you kind of mentioned that it's not super uncommon for a derm path to have a clinic kind of in a derm office setting and the differences with that is there any advice you would have for maybe people who are interested in derm path um, but who are obviously going to be working closely with dermatopathologists just by nature of the practice any advice on on how to i guess um not necessarily make the job of the dermatopathologist easier, but just tips for the dermatologist to get better results with their specimens as they send them off to you guys for processing? Yes. So the more clinical history, the better. Um, 
when you know there's a famous saying in pathology or you know is that crap in crap out so you know the less you information you give us um the the more vague the information um it's just going to to really not help we're not going to be able to get very definitive in a diagnosis if we don't have very strong history and so the more vague information we get the more vague diagnosis we um we we send out and so that's the number one um is is really just giving a strong clinical uh, background of the patient uh number two pictures are amazing uh so you know picture says a thousand words um you don't have to write the whole thing down but if you put a picture in there it definitely gives it a lot more context especially to groups like us that have a lot of derm trained pathologists that we you know they'll they'll know exactly what's going on in a certain clinical scenario um, so number two, number three is understanding that pathology has, we're a test just like everything else. Um, you know, we have positive, uh, false negatives, false positives, um, and understanding that if our diagnosis doesn't fit with what you're seeing clinically, question the diagnosis or maybe do another biopsy because we're not seeing what you're seeing. Don't just take our, our pathology report as gospel. Um, think of it as any other test that you would order and, and you know, and, and you need to, to double check the accuracy of it. And so the, if, if you keep those keys in mind, I, I think that, uh, that your clinical practice will be a lot better off. I don't know how common it is with sending the specimens in, but do Clinicians usually include a differential when they send them in, or are those helpful in most cases, or you almost not look at Definitely. them to avoid bias? No, well, some some people like to just look straight up without seeing that. Um, I I don't I think that personally, I think that's more maybe ego than anything else. They like to think, well, I don't need it. I don't need any clinical picture. I can just look at this slide and tell you what's going on. Uh, from my experience, that's just not the case. I mean, that there's so many histology. It's just like in clinical. Certain clinical presentations can definitely overlap, and uh, and so eczema can in a certain patient, eczema can look like psoriasis. They can't tell clinically what it is without doing a biopsy. Well, there's certain aspects of uh, pathology where the histology can look exactly the same. I mean, for example, you give me a, you know, there's certain histology. That if I didn't know the age of the patient on a, in a melanocytic lesion, it'd be 100% melanoma. But if you told if you told me the patient was 80 years old, it'd be 100% melanoma. If you told me the patient was eight years old, it's probably spitz nevus, right? And so that's all just based on an age. And um, and so I mean, obviously, we always get the ages of the patient, but it just gives you an idea that you know that clinical history can completely change the diagnosis and go from being completely malignant and something that, you know, bad things are going to happen to that patient to, hey, don't worry about it at all. It's fine. And that's just based on an age. So think about, that's a very simple um, example. And, you know, that, so no, I don't think that there's ever an issue where clinical information can be too much. Um, Deferentials definitely do help. uh, And it, I mean, a deferential, basically what it does is it gives us a clue what you're seeing clinically, right? Because you looked at a clinical 
scenario and then you came up with the differential. So when we see a differential, we can sort of, you know, in our mind, reverse engineer that to what you were seeing clinically. And so differentials tend to be the most common, but, you know, a picture just is why go differential when you just send a picture and we can look at it ourselves. So, right. uh, really but so having the whole patient than, history and kind of background, you can use pieces of it to really aid in the diagnosis. But it's definitely better than uh, rash. Right. <laughs> which, 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 which we can get there. We get that more, more often than not. Just rash. That's it. <laughs> Just rash. But okay. a lot of times those can come from the nurse practitioners or, you know, maybe what happens is the doctor does say a lot of stuff, but the, they're in a hurry and, or, or the practice in a hurry or they forgot and they filled it out later and they're like, oh, well, just put rash down. So a lot of times it's not the clinician putting that down. It's, you know, more the MA or the staff and how, you know, so a lot of times when we see that, we'll just call the clinician up and say, hey, um, you know, we got rash, but can you give me a little bit more background? I'm, I'm really not. I'm seeing something, but I'm not sure if it's in the right context. Yeah. And so that's where that communication becomes key. Right. right. And I think that that's really, and um, speaking with the other dermatopathologists we had on the show, she really emphasized that having those relationships with um, the clinicians is really important, knowing that you know what you're doing, they know what they're doing, and you both have aspects that can help to better diagnose and treat the patient. Um, that's where she mentioned that that's where the greatest successes come, kind of when you both trust each other and trust their expertise and use Definitely. them together. Yeah, and that's why when you have that relationship, it's very hard to break because, you know, it's like going to your, you know, favorite restaurant or, or um, you know, working with your, I'm just using examples, your, your, your favorite you know, insurance broker or something. You, you when you, or, 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 maybe it's a particular car salesman at a, at a dealership. Um, you're going to go back to the person you trust because why fix something that's not broke, first of all? And secondly, why take a risk of moving to somewhere else that you might not, not ever get that trust? And that that's no different than in Durapath and what we, um, the type of connections we make. The one thing um, with Sages that I've noticed and just kind of following Sages on social media platforms and elsewhere that you all are very involved in education, um, resident education, fellow education. Is there anything you want to kind of plug for that, for your education sphere or ways that people yeah. get involved? Yeah. So, so we, we, we def, I mean, I, that's, you know, we're at the, at the end of the day, we're, we're not just about the bottom line and um, we're, we're physicians that own a, a, you know, physician group practice. and Yes, money and revenue and reimbursements are necessary to pay the bills and keep everyone employed and continue to grow. But it's not the it's not the end all be all, and it's not our number one decision making is, is finances. Um, we tend to try to just do good and and all that stuff um, will take care of itself. While doing good is also education, giving back, and making sure that um, you know the residents that are coming out are are properly trained. Um, the more histology, the more they know about dermatopathology, better they understand about what we do, the better clinician they're going to be. And so, and the better clinician they're going to be, the better they're going to take care of their patients. And those patients are going to have a better outcomes. So that is the number one goal of what we do. And, uh, and so that's why we put a significant emphasis on resident education. 
So we do a weekly Dermpath Happy Hour that started during COVID, actually, and it was really because we were shut down for you know months, just like the rest of the world was, and we had a lot of downtime, and we have a lot of smart doctors that you know our team is pretty energetic and um, I think we like to think outside the box and do kind of fun stuff. And so we took our energy of not signing out cases for a while and said, Hey, why don't we build out a platform that we can do uh, digital education? Um, and we're not sure how long this is going to last. So maybe this is a way that we can continue educating these residents uh, when a time that they might not be able to get that from the residency program. And that's because most people sit around a scope. Most residents sit around a microscope to learn this stuff in their residency program. Well, during COVID, most people weren't getting that close to each other. So they weren't getting any education at all. So what we did was put these happy hours, try to make it fun. Um, we did it on Monday evenings. We encouraged everyone to bring a glass of wine and just kind of make it, you know, just loosen up and, and uh, ask questions and, um, and just make it a fun experience. And that's, uh, and we started with a few residents, social media picked it up, it got spread around. And then at one point during the height of COVID, I mean, we had a significant amount of the residents, not just in the US, but in Canada, Mexico, overseas, uh, tuning in every week um, to ask questions and look at cases. And it was awesome. And so now that the pandemic is subsided, we don't have as many live participants um, because you know everyone's now gotten back in their flow of their life. They're they're being around the microscope more in the residency program and all that. But we still do it every week, and we record those um, sessions and we put them online so that a lot of people are accessing them on their time. Which is at the end of the day, I don't care when they get it. I don't care how they learn it or when they learn it. I just care that they that they eventually learn it. And so that's been a great thing. Um, we definitely um, do a lot of local teaching with, with residents here in the Houston area. Um, we allow residents to rotate through our lab if they want to see more pathology. Uh, we do interesting cases with the Dermpath Fellows locally um, at MD Anderson, Baylor, and uh, UT Houston, even at UTMB. Uh, we do uh, review sessions for, for, their, for resident path boards. We do re review sessions also for their in-surface exams. So those have been extremely popular. Um, we are creating a sort of a Dermpath sort of challenge at our Texas uh, Dermatology Society this year, just to have more resident engagement in that, try to make learning Dermpath fun. Um, and, you know, we, we just try to emphasize the importance of learning this stuff. Uh, we also, you know, understand that it can be difficult and so we try to make it fun and that's and i think we've accomplished that pretty well and i think accomplished it just as good or better than anyone else in the country yeah i've seen some of those the happy hours on youtube i've i've watched a few of them and then um like you mentioned weekly on instagram there's there's usually like a, a they present some clinical pictures with some of the local dermatologists and then one of the derm path kind of comes on and breaks down the diagnosis and has the little interactive polls and stuff. And so those are pretty, uh, and fun and engaging. And granted, I don't know all that much about pathology or particularly dermatopathology, but it's still fun to kind of take the clinical image and then realize or kind of see what it will look like under the microscope and gain just a little bit of insight into that. Um, 
So we'll definitely plug yeah. some of the Instagrams and stuff in the in the show notes for people to go take a look at that because I find it really enjoyable. Yeah, that, that's great. And then um, like at the AAD last year, we did an actual actual real happy hour. And it was amazing to see how many residents showed up. We got a little, small little room and I wasn't, and when you try to gauge people's participation, I mean, we were more on the conservative side and it got so packed that it was spilling out into, into like the, another room and it, you could barely move and everyone was just excited. They're like, man, we've been doing this virtually for so long. It's kind of, you know, cool to, to see all in person. And that, that was pretty neat. And then, um, so we're going to do a similar event like that in, in New Orleans. With a bigger room. Like With definitely a bigger room. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it's a, you know, everyone, we've been, we've been pushed to a digital aspect of interacting. Uh, I think we were moving like that as a society before COVID, but COVID accelerated things. But you still can't um, you can't underestimate the importance of one to one human interaction. So I think that's why those um, the real happy hours are, are so popular. Uh, but with that being said, uh, you know if you're going to be a res a med student looking to apply for residency, especially if it's in dermatology. I tell all the med students that I know that are in, interested in, in going down that path that if you really want to impress yourself, if you really want yourself to look very impressive during an interview, learn a ton of derm path because most med students don't, it's hard, they don't understand it very well, and they get, they do more clinical rotation. So they focus on the clinical aspect. The ones that you want to separate yourself, Rotate through Dermpath, pick up a Dermpath book and flip through it, get with someone locally and have them explain things to you, and then talk about that during your interview. And I guarantee you will blow away most interviewers that know that you're even asking those questions. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, and like you mentioned, it can be hard, and it all kind of, at least to me, starts to look very similar and the same, but learning those little nuanced differences, I can imagine would be well, good to know. And you're going to have to learn it anyway. I mean, yeah. you, you have to, but you can't, you can't pass your boards unless you know Derm Path, right? So, you know, you're going to have to learn anyway. You might as well, you might as well do it now and then make yourself look good and you have to be better. <laughs> you know, your options are better for getting in the program you want to get into. And then other thing is do a, do a Derm Path, you know, case report. Get with your local dermatologist. We can help with that. We do a ton of cases. We see interesting stuff every day. Um, say, hey, look, the next time you see something interesting, let me know. You think it'd be a good case report? I would. I will dive into right doing all the work and writing it up, um, and even coming and taking photos. And um, you know, it helps the pathologist. They can put you know everyone's name gets published, and it's fun. And and the med student can make a poster out of it. And um, there's just a lot of positive aspects of that. It just takes some initiative from from a student to to say, hey, please look out for this, and I'll do. I'll I'll do most of the work. That's great, and I'm sure from your perspective as well it's refreshing almost in a way when they're excited about wanting to do a project and willing to put the legwork in and showing that initiative um as opposed to you know it's kind of a box they need to check and oh can i do a case report and then kind of being in and out of it not super engaged not super dedicated to it and so um showing that initiative and reaching out to someone i think is really kind of might be intimidating at first but i think showing that involvement and dedication from the jump probably goes a lot a lot further than we think it does no doubt about it um one just kind of 
question I have that I wanted to ask and I find kind of interesting with the field of derm path. Is there a, a diagnosis or condition that you um, enjoy seeing under the slide or is like kind of unique and something that you perk up whenever it comes across to your microscope? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I doing my search path fellowship at MD Anderson before during derm path, obviously they get a ton of melanomas. And so I felt like when I came into my derm path fellowship, I knew more about melanomas than even the, the staff derm paths in my program. Um, and, and just because we were seeing it every day, all day. And it, it's an unfortunate diagnosis, but, you know, like I tell people, I give, you know, sometimes in my day I have to give people bad news, but you know what that bad news is, is good news in a sense that now you know what you're dealing with. You can't, can't attack a problem unless you know what the problem is. And so um, my favorite probably diagnosis to, to make in a sense that I'm giving a name to something and allowing that patient to now get on, on a road of recovery or to put a, put a plan together to, to recover is melanoma. And um, I just like that it's, you know, you, it's all over the board in terms of its presentations. Um, it can be, it gets, it's all over the board in terms of its presentations clinically. Um, that's even more so histologically. Um, you need a ton of clinical correlation. And it's probably, it's one of those deals that, depending on the clinical aspect of, of things, it can completely change from me calling it something benign, um, you know, a dysplastic nevus to a invasive melanoma. And so I like knowing that's always fun when that clinical aspect allows me to solve the problem and that I look at it as a, a puzzle um, and, and it keeps me engaged. And I think kind of like you added, it, it's a, a good perspective to have that while it might not be a desirable or pleasant diagnosis, it's one that provides, you know, a, a path for treatment and provides that kind of reassurance, if you will, in a way that we know what this is and there's ways to go about treating it, even though it might not be a benign lesion as someone may have hoped. Correct. Perfect. Well, I think that kind of wraps us up for today. Is there anything else, any other tips of advice or anything you wanted to leave us with um, kind of here at the end? No, I think we're good. Perfect. Yeah, that's just it's been awesome. Yeah, well, I appreciate so much the conversation and I think it has been really insightful to kind of the, the other side of derm path, I guess you might say that many people aren't as familiar with. Um, we'll, we'll leave all of the websites for Sages, the educational resources, Instagram and things like that in the show notes. I definitely would encourage our listeners to check it out. Um, just like Dr. Cangelos, he mentioned, even if you're not interested in derm path, if you're interested in derm, you have to learn derm path eventually. So might as well get a leg up and kind of take advantage of it, if you will. Um, but thank you again so much, Dr. Cangelosi, for, for joining us and for sharing your insight and spending a, an hour of your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DIGA podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to dermintrustpod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Thank you.